0: Scripture shapes the lives of billions of people around the world. Yet scriptures, both the Bible and the Quran, only gain meaning when they are interpreted by the human mind. Minding Scripture, a podcast from the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, explores the meeting of reason with the scriptures of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I am Gabriel Said Reynolds, Professor of Islamic Studies and Theology in the World Religions World Church Program at Notre Dame. Joining me are the co-founders of the project, Professor Francesca Murphy. Hello. Nice to be here with you, Professor Zvi Novik. Nice to be here too. And Professor Munim Suri. Thank you. Great. So, friends, you might remember if you've been following us and listening to Mining Scripture that our very first episode, we engaged with the topic of the beginning of things with the story of Adam and Eve. Well, today we turn to the end of things to discuss with the scriptures of Judaism, Christianity, Islam have to say about what comes after human life and what will unfold at the end of human history. Today on Mining Scripture, we discuss the afterlife. Now, for most of the episodes of Mining Scripture, we have proceeded with basically a chronological order, that is, starting with Hebrew Bible Old Testament, then New Testament, then Qur'an. But today, I think we'll do things the other way around, and we'll begin with the Qur'an. This is in part because the Qur'an is so profoundly marked by an interest in the end times and the afterlife. And we're going to try to sort through that. What what does that mean when we speak of end times? What does it mean when we speak of the afterlife? I thought a good path forward might be to quote um, one of the the shorter surahs or chapters of the Quran, which appears to the end of the text, the holy scripture of Islam. This is surah 99, al And just as a reminder or a little bit of information, the surahs in the Qur'an generally move from longer to shorter. So when we get to the the smaller surahs at the end of the Qur'an, they tend to be um, short surahs, they tend to also have short verses, and they tend to have sort of a rhythmic quality to them. So here we go, beginning with verse 1 of surah or chapter 99 of the Qur'an. When the earth is rocked with a terrible quake and discharges its burdens, and man says, what is the matter with her? On that day she will relate her chronicles. For her Lord will have inspired her. On that day, mankind will issue forth in various groups to be shown their deeds. So whoever does an Adam's weight of good will see it. And whoever does an Adam's weight of evil will see it. So Munim Suri, how do we work our way through this passage of Surah 99? There's a reference to a terrible quake. There's some allusions to the day, that day, and also to Maybe some sort of judgment of deeds. There's this reference to an Adam's weight of good, Adam's weight of evil.
1: Where do we begin? Sure, so, thank you. So I think the surah describes the coming of the end of the day along with what will happen with the earth and everything on it. So the last two verses that you just recited introduce an important principle in Islam concerning the relationship between human action on this earth and their consequences in the year after. And the Qur'an pays much attention to the question of the end of the day. So perhaps one of the most frequently discussed topics in the Qur'an concerned with what will happen at the final day of judgment. So the Qur'an use number of, of, of terms to identify the end of the day. For instance, the day of judgment or the day of resurrection. The Quran also used the term, you know, the last day. So especially in the the sort of surahs, uh, you know, like the one that you just read, these topics of the end of the day is so prominent. But it is a a, a topic that, you know, that that is addressed in the Quran throughout the book. Right, and it seems that
0: judgment happens then, right? It doesn't just sort through this bit about afterlife versus eschatology or right. what happens in the end times. I mean, individual judgment takes place on that great day, the last day, the day of resurrection. Right. So it's not
1: right upon your death, it seems like. How, how does that work? Well, f- from the time of the death to the day of resurrection, there is, of course, you know, kind of waiting periods, you know, which is often called as the barzakh, the, you know, can, which can be rendered as partition or barrier. But the Quran doesn't tell anything about what this Barzakh actually means. The idea simply is that when people died, they will not be able to return to this world, meaning the Barzakh separate this land of living from those who have died.
0: And is it is it right to present this as falling into a sort of state of sleep until the day of judgment, that you lose consciousness until you, you're awoken on, on the day of resurrection? Yeah,
1: actually the Qur'an compare between death and, and common sleep that people experience in their daily life. So some scholars argue that the soul, when separated from the body, are in the state of unconsciousness similar to sleep. Uh, yeah, how, it makes
0: me think of some, I mean, there's New Testament, this is a yeah, New Testament metaphor to death, too, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, in the story of the raising of Lazarus in John's Gospel, does, doesn't doesn't Jesus say there's something like, he And the, really, the first resurrection,
2: asleep? also the first the first explicit reference to resurrection in the Hebrew Bible, uh, late in the book of Daniel, uh, speaks of arising or waking from uh, th- th- those sleeping in the dust of the earth, awaking in Daniel twelve. So yeah, that's a common metaphor. But may, may I ask? So sure. if there's I'm gonna, so if there's this kind of suspended kind of sleep state, is the Quran interested in? Or does it uh, kind of envision the possibility of someone, say, accruing merit in virtue of what descendants do in that stretch of time between death and the final judgment? Or is it pretty much your your book is sealed or your case is sealed, your docket is sealed at the time of your death? Does it envision a kind of any sort of connection between those dead and the living even d- despite this partition? I mean, I ask because right. com- com- coming from a Jewish context, there is this notion of the, the way in which one raises children can redound to one's merit uh, even after death. So, I, I, is there a No, it's, it's
1: not in the Quran. Um, so the Quran does not say something in detail concerning what happened with the soul when separated from the body. So, this is subject to a great speculation among Muslim scholars. So, the, perhaps the most accepted narrative on this is that the soul will embark kind of journey, perhaps model you know, like uh, the, the Muhammad when uh, he took a journey uh, to yeah. the heavens. Yes. So what happened with good soul, with the weak soul? But the, the point that you just mentioned concerning, you know, whether, uh, you know, the, the prayer of the children will reach, you know, the dead is, is mentioned in the Hadith. It's not in the, in, in the Quran itself. Can you but pray is, for the dead? Yes, that's, that's the Hadith. In the, the Hadith, the, you pray for the dead? Right. The sons um, can pray for their parents.
0: So, I mean, at the end of this sleep or this barzakh, there is judgment. And we we had this allusion to it. This language of Mm -hmm. the Adam's weight of good or evil may be redounding to the microscopic reach of divine um, judgment or justice. That God will know everything or everything will Mm -hmm. be recorded. I mean, there's a lot we could speak about because we have various narratives in Quran and then in these other traditions. Hadith, of course, being the um, written text recording either the, the words or the deeds, the actions of the Prophet Muhammad having a certain authority um, as revelation. But I really want to focus on the, the Qur'anic presentation of, sure. of what happens when, when you're finally judged, you know. Right. What, what happens then? What happens next? The Qur'an does speak frequently and maybe in more vivid detail than the Bible about heaven and hell. Sure. Um, the word in the Qur'an for heaven is jannah. Jannah, um, the garden. Yeah, meaning garden. And then we also encounter this other word, firdaus. I think a lot of scholars say it has a Persian origin, but also passed through Greek. Um, again, meaning something like garden. Maybe it was a walled garden in particular, I think mm-hmm. is one interpretation I've seen. Yeah, and so, the two
1: terms, you know, often use uh, simultaneously, jannatul you know, berdaus, meaning the garden of paradise.
0: The garden of paradise, right. So, I mean, what does the Quran imagine will be the fate of those who um, are lucky enough were blessed enough were m- meritorious enough mm. to make it into this paradise? I mean, what is it like there?
1: Right. The, the Quran describes the reward of those of the people of paradise in great detail. So oftentimes, the description of the Quran is so graphic to the extent that Islam has been accused by many people of being very materialistic conception of the afterlife. One example of the joy that the people of paradise will have is the abundant water uh, and a lot of uh, liquids in the rivers flowing through the paradise. Including a
0: presence of wine, right? That, of that doesn't wine, make you intoxicated, intoxicated, but it's still wine. Right.
1: Yeah. So um, the, the people of paradise will enjoy lo- all kind of foods and they'll wear luxurious uh, garments. So the Quran describes the kind of reward that the people of, of paradise will enjoy in so detail to the extent that I think that the, the intention there is to attract or appeal to the people at the time. If, if the Quran emerged in the 21st century, the description will be different. Interesting. That's
2: very. <laughs> and is that? I mean, <laughs> was that? I, I imagine there there is uh, an internal critique, also or an internal reinterpretation, or is right. there a tradition of internal reinterpretation of these material rewards in a more spiritual way? Right. Yeah. Um, or most famously,
0: if I could just yeah, m- sure. mention what maybe some of our audience is always thinking. There's there's an allusion to. This in Arabic Hurdaeen traditionally interpreted or sometimes called mates, um spouses, is mm-hmm. traditionally interpreted as maidens of paradise or virgins of paradise or I heard yeah. that was a
3: mistranslation and it's really raisins. So there's seventy-seven well, raisins.
0: Yeah, there was a book written about that, but has right. has not gained a major following among scholars. Okay. Yeah.
1: So I think that yeah. the the Quranic reference to heavenly attendant. You know, has attracted. You know, uh, perhaps this is one of the most commented upon. Thomas Aquinas uh, 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 mentions uh, uh, it, right? uh, You know, because men's, you know, are promised that they will be given a woman, you know, usually understood to be virgin. But I think this issue is very complex to unpack because the Quran does not provide a single narrative. You know, in some places the Quran seems to suggest that that the people of of the paradise will be given. Uh, their own pure spouse. So the, the pure spouse is mentioned in the Quran. And of course, you know, the Quran also mentioned about the Huris, um, yes. you know, a, a woman with um, large and dark eyes. <laughs> and also, you know, sometimes the Quran mentioned um, simply woman with modest uh, of gaze. gaze. Uh, right. Right. So it's the Quran does not provide a single picture of what the woman who will be given to men will look like. Yeah, but just back to Zvi's question
0: for a second, I mean, are there
1: new interpretations
0: that see this as symbolic language, or maybe not new, maybe they're old interpretations that see this as metaphorical,
1: symbolic, figurative, and that the real pleasures are spiritual, or how is that? Yeah, some people, you know, argue that these descriptions should not be understood literally. But do you think most
3: Muslims think they'll literally be women in heaven having
1: I, I think most Muslims would believe that because the hadith is very vivid, it's very yeah. explicit about yeah. even the number of women yeah. who will be given to men, is very explicit. And in the, Quran.
3: the women aren't given men. <laughs> but, yeah, that's interesting,
1: that's, 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 that's interesting right. point. Well, even not, the idea
2: of wine, that, that doesn't intoxicate, I don't know how attractive that is. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the women are not given men,
0: but the Qur'an, of course, explicitly makes the promise of paradise also to women. It speaks about the mu'minat, the believing women. Right. And there are, I think, a common interpretation, because some of the language about the women is um, that you'll be married to them, mm-hmm. Um, So we've married them off, too. And so I've read interpretations that, well, that implies that, in fact, you'll be married to your spouse. So women, too, will. And of course, it's it's a little more complicated. Yeah, Arabic
1: Arabic language is complicated. Sometimes the Qur'an makes very explicit that men and women are mentioned, you know, in in gender terms. But in other places, you know, uh, there is tendency among scholars to understand that when the Quran referred to a people as men, they also it actually mean women as well. So. But,
2: but could I ask maybe maybe the, the similar question to the one that I asked earlier, but in a slightly different way? Is there a kind of a, a notion that one ought to to do good, to have faith hmm. uh, for its own sake, and then of course the reward will come because God um, rewards. Uh, faith and goodness, but that right. one should do these things for their own sake. Is, there, is that a, a voice within uh, the Muslim interpretive tradition?
1: Sure, it is very explicit in the Quran. Mm-hmm. Uh, e- even the last two verses that Gabriel just recited uh, is introduced an uh, important principle because whoever does the tiniest bit of good will see it. Just like whoever does the tiniest bit of evil we will see it. So I think it's, it's, this issue relates to the, the question of the divine justice. To put it simply, that whoever does good will be rewarded, just like whoever does evil will be rewarded. So it depends on their own action. So that's, that's very explicit even in the Quran.
3: But do you think this focus on the end times means that Islam is a religion of punishment and reward? Is that at the heart of Islam, punishment and reward?
1: Well, the Quran seems to emphasize the importance of the day of judgment because of the reason that human actions on this earth have consequences in the hereafter. So I think this notion is so central in the Quran. But the Quran also, you know, say that do not forget your portion in this world. I think the point is simply. That there is a direct relationship, direct connection between people' action on this earth and you know what happened in the life after. Meaning that we live on this earth in short period of time, so short-term action will have long-term consequences. Yes. yes. Yes.
0: Well, um, it's something that interests me about this presentation of heaven as a, the garden of paradise. I think this would complicate things, but I think there's also an allusion to heaven in the Qur'an, specifically as the Garden of Eden.
3: That right. was what I wanted so to ask. So there's this notion of return. return. Of Eden?
0: Yeah, I think in the Qur'an, I don't know, maybe you see things differently, but I think um, the Qur'an develops this idea, essentially, that, that you're returning to the paradise which God initially established um, for Adam and his wife, for Adam and Eve. We could um, speak m- more about that, but it it seems to me that the garden imagery suggests that paradise is principally a location of reward. There's not much explicit in the Quran about your heavenly reward or the reward in the afterlife being spiritual communion Mm -hmm, with God, mm -hmm. right? And I don't know if there's much there in the Bible either about that notion, but um, the notion of garden suggests this, this this doesn't mean you're going to convene with God and be with the angels and in the divine court, you're going to be in a special place prepared for you for your reward. What do you think about that?
3: In the book of Revelation, what the people in heaven are doing is worshipping. Yeah, so actually that is explicit. It's one big worship service. That's true.
0: That is explicit, yes. The heaven heavenly choirs and the yes, divine divine liturgy celestial singing. liturgy. Yes,
3: if you don't like liturgy, you're going to hate it up there. <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: And yeah, and and the Tanakh, the the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Right, it doesn't have, uh, and perhaps we'll we'll get to this in the course of discussion. It doesn't have a, a very developed conception of the the content of the afterlife either. But that garden is described in the um, in the Old Testament as the Garden of God, and so and it is the place in which God walks. It is God's garden, and so to the extent that later, post-biblical interpreters are thinking about that garden as the, as the eventual destination of the righteous. It will almost inevitably involve some sort of communion with God, being in the presence of God. And I think the Hebrew word is related to Arabic, jannah. Right? Oh, it's, it's gan, right, gan, right, right. And it's yeah. described right, gan, uh, gan Hashem, gan, the garden of
3: So uh, do of people spend their time in heaven gardening?
2: All right, who is the heavenly gardener? question, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we we still have a lot to speak about in regard
0: to um, the Bible, both Hebrew Bible and New Testament. Maybe we'll return to the Quran as well, but um, we'll take a break here and be back soon. Welcome back to Minding Scripture. You know, at the end of the first part of this episode, we were speaking about the Qur'anic presentation of the afterlife, where really in particular we were speaking about paradise and sort of the the physical imagery, the vivid imagery we have of the heavenly garden in the Qur'an. And it seems there's some roots for that in the biblical presentation of paradise. Well, at least the word paradise appears there. There's some allusion, some metaphorical, some in the course of parables to what life is like. But, um, Francesca, I mean, finally, what what can we say about the New Testament vision of the afterlife?
3: Well, in the first place, the most distinctive thing about the New Testament idea of the afterlife is that it's based in the resurrection of Jesus. Right. Everything we can say about the afterlife comes back to our belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so he has an embodied resurrection. Right. And so we believe the afterlife will be embodied. We won't just be sold because Jesus resurrected bodily. And so we will have a bodily resurrection based on his resurrection.
0: I mean, in some ways, I don't know how you feel about this or my colleagues here, but it's almost easier to imagine an embodied resurrection than existing just as a spirit or a soul. I mean, even though, like Mm. for the Quranic opponents to the prophet, the idea of a bodily resurrection was a big problem, right? But I've always thought, and I speak about this with my kids sometimes, that the image of Christ returned from the dead gives us I mean, for Christians, gives a, a model of what, what the afterlife was like. You won't be a ghost floating around somewhere, but you'll be body and soul.
2: But, I mean, but the story of Christ doesn't end with the resurrection. I mean, then there's the ascent, but, but yes. the afterlife, you say, is kind of located at that layer of resurrection, and there isn't a, a kind of a, a post-bodily postscript in the Christian afterlife?
3: Well, Paul sees the ascended Christ Paul on the road to Damascus doesn't see the resurrected Christ because at that point he's ascended. He sees the ascended Christ, and he seems to see a physical ascended Christ. So the idea is that Christ's humanity has been assumed into heaven. Mm-hmm.
0: But but there is this this bit. I mean, I think you're basically leading us in this direction, namely the notion that the New Testament presentation isn't explicit. You know, it's not this precise doctrinal formulation of what. Um, our experience would be like after death. You know, I once spoke with an Italian um, bishop or Cardinal Martini, who's of blessed memory now, and I asked him, you know, basically this, you know, what is it going to be like when we die? And he said, you only you simply
2: have to have faith in divine providence. Mm. So, I mean, mean, it's interesting. So it's less, I mean, you're saying you're making the point I think that it's less vivid or less worked out as to what it will look like, but, but the fact of, of existence after death and victory over death is absolutely central. The central in, 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 thing in Christianity in the is the right. idea of
3: the victory so, over death.
2: Yes. So the, yeah, so it's not, it's not the experience of what the afterlife will consist of. Uh, that seems to be, I guess, more the up in the of, air, as it were.
3: The Book of Revelation right. has the most explicit descriptions of the next world, right. and it was not received into the canon until people had clearly figured out how to interpret it spiritually or allegorically. right because bishops didn't want people taking this literally With
0: beasts and dragons and exactly uh, scrolls mm-hmm. and, and
3: so and only after it had been given an allegorical spi- spiritual interpretation was it permitted in biblical context I mean
0: already in the gospels I mean let, let's think of this episode in Luke 23 where Christ is on the cross and there are two criminals crucified on either side of him and of course one sort of reprimands him for not um, uh, doing a miracle to bring them down and the other known in Christian tradition as the good thief says remember me when you enter into your kingdom and Christ says um, something like I'm paraphrasing here truly I say to you today you will be with me in paradise right so that promise at least is important but yeah
3: I think that what's going on here is that the good thief is recognizing Jesus as a king he says, "Remember me when you come into your kingdom, so that even on the cross, Jesus is reigning as a king. And that what what's being emphasized is the good thief's faith that Jesus is still a king even while he's being crucified. Right. So Jesus is reigning from the cross as king, and the good thief can see that. Yeah. So it's about Jesus; it's not about the afterlife."
2: Okay. Yeah. Right, though I guess the question, there is this question about the kingdom, right? And what is, yes. the, what is, what the, kingdom is the kingdom and what is the relationship between the kingdom yes. and the afterlife? Is yes. the kingdom something on earth, something on hev- something yes. in heaven? Right. Yes. right.
0: But this, this Christocentric vision becomes central also to the writings of Paul. Maybe I shouldn't say becomes because some of Paul's writings are, are quite early. And I'd just like to read a passage here from 1 Corinthians in which Paul really makes the point that, listen, as Christians, there's something special that's, that's taken place. The resurrection of Christ gives us hope. You know, if, according to a lot of later theological formulations in the sacrifice on the cross, redemption is one, but the resurrection matters for Christians, right? So this is 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death.
3: Yes, it's a really important passage because it shows that Christians don't believe in the afterlife with all kinds of special things about its geography with heaven and purgatory and hell and so on. Christians believe in the resurrection of Jesus and that brings with it the afterlife. So the center of the whole conception of the afterlife is this faith beginning uh, from the disciples that Jesus was resurrected from the dead.
0: Hmm. So this notion that's developed later on of um, or what some people call a beatific vision, this um, encountering the face of God or dwelling in the very presence of God or anything else someone might observe about existence in heaven. This is developed later. I mean, this is reflection on revelation, reflection on Scripture that leads ultimately to that. Yes. But Scripture in the New Testament, is, it's about Christ's resurrection.
3: The afterlife isn't like an additional thing in Christianity. Christianity is belief in the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, that's like the the central thing which distinguishes it as a faith. Right. The early Christians were people who believed that Jesus was bodily resurrected from the dead. Right, Mm. right.
0: Now, there's of course the other dimension to all of this, which is at least in Christian and Islamic, and maybe I need some illumination on the Jewish um, perspective on this Svi, but in in Christian and Islamic thought, it's not just about heaven. There's also hell, there's also judgment, there's also condemnation, also in Judaism. Okay, in the New Testament, maybe the most explicit picture of judgment we have is in Luke chapter 16, where we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and he's, you know, the rich man because he's been so cruel to this poor beggar at his doorstep is down in, in the flames and suffering and wants just a drop of water, and even that is denied him. It's about the resurrection of Christ and the hope of that, but there's still this looming element of potential judgment, right?
3: At the end of the story, they asked Jesus, could we go and tell? You know, Could we go and tell everybody about this? And Jesus says, look, if you don't believe this, you wouldn't even believe it if someone rose from the dead. Came back from the dead. Mm-hmm. right? So again, right. it's about Jesus and about believing that he has risen from the dead. That's the right. heart of the story. Right. Yeah.
0: So I, I know in, in the Quran, but I mean, you just uh, sort of alluded to this or mentioned that in Judaism as well, there's this other darker aspect as well. There is judgment. Mm-hmm. and.
2: Yeah. Right, right. So there is a yeah, there is a uh, hell. I mean, in in, in general, um, I think it's fair to say that Judaism is more interested in laying out uh, the prescriptions for uh, what one does in this life, rather than uh, kind of devoting a lot of attention to uh, kind of mapping out the the sufferings and, and hell or the uh, or the rewards and. Paradise, uh, but there certainly is that the, the the there is this presumption of judgment and the, the existence of hell, the existence of uh, of a world of a world to come in which there is judgment does undergird an entire structure of uh, reward and punishment. Now, one, one expression Christ use,
0: uses for the place of punishment is is Gehenna, which I think actually has a specific geographical connection in the city of Jerusalem, right? Right,
2: right. Well, like the, like the Garden of Eden itself, which has a specific geographical location amidst these rivers, uh, among them rivers that are all familiar to us, like Tigris and Euphrates. Right. Uh, so, too, Gehenna is, uh, in the Bible, Geben-Hinnom, uh, this valley on the outskirts of Jerusalem that is described in the prophets. And so, but then it becomes this figure for an underworld of punishment, that's right. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, and that shows yeah, up in yeah, the Quran, the, the, right? Yeah, uh, the, the, the Quran also mentioned the word Jahannam, uh, referring to, to, to hell. And it describes the, the nature of punishment in great detail. One question that seems to be interesting is that whether sinners will be punished forever in the hell, how long they will stay there. Again, the Qur'an does not present a, a you know, single point of view on this, but numerous verses in the Qur'an say that the sinners will be punished in hell forever. So the word used is khalidun, khalat, you know, associated with eternality meaning that the pa- that the sinners will be punished uh, eternally however there are you know there is uh, you know some evidence in the quran also that suggests that the dumb will punish not eternally because in number of places in the quran that the sinners will be punished for many years and even mm-hmm. in number of other places saying that you know the, 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 the confinement to the fire will be forever unless god wills god something wills. else yeah. so so it's, it's a very really complex issue, yeah.
3: Yes. In Christianity, a finite hell would be purgatory. Mm. There's no finite uh, you know, short-term hell. There, there's, um, there's heaven and then there's purgatory if you're already saved but you've got some stuff to burn, you've got some karma yet to burn, and then there's hell which is eternal.
2: I wonder what rides really on these metaphysical differences. Why is it the case that Islam and and Judaism likewise imagine a single space in which there could be conceivably anyhow eternal Mm -hmm. punishment, but then also a kind of a short-term punishment uh, that then leads to uh, passage into the world to come, Gan Eden? Are these subtle metaphysical distinctions, or is there an underlying kind of theology of sin and punishment that's at work in the decision? Well,
3: in The Great Divorce, c.s lewis imagines people leaving hell on this bus and going into heaven and some of them decide to stay and some decide to go back they don't like heaven for various reasons and i Mm -hmm. think c.s lewis says well hell was purgatory if you left (laughs) <laughs> and I think as an Anglican, as a Northern Ireland Protestant, he didn't really want to call it purgatory, so he had to imagine it like that, as a, mm-hmm. as a sort of yeah. suburb yeah. of hell.
0: But in Islamic <laughs> tradition, too, I mean, there are some thinkers in Islamic tradition, among them maybe, mm-hmm. uh, maybe you can comment on this, although I know it's a debated question, the famous Ibn Taymiyyah who's seen by some as sort of the godfather of modern fundamentalism mm-hmm. or Salafism. Yeah, but Ibn Taymiyyah believed firmly in the, in the mercy of God and that the goal of this whole thing is to bring people right. to, he- to heaven so that they would be they're rewarded. That's what God he wants our good. I mean, the Quran speaks repeatedly of divine mercy, you know, but then it also speaks about hell. So how does it go together? Well, it goes together because, um, at least for me, I think hell is a place of sort of of therapy, which I guess is connected to yes. the notion of purgation. Right? You work through your sins, you pay the punishment, but ultimately you, you make it to heaven. Are
3: so they, he thought it was all purgatorial, well, all therapeutic, and yeah. so the whole of hell is simply just a purgatory. Yeah.
1: So if the Quranic text that suggests that you know the confinement to you know to to, to the fire, we will forever. Unless God will something else, it's highlighted actually the power and mercy of God, rather than defining, you know, how long you know the sinner will stay in, in the hell. So it's, it's about the mercy of God instead of about you know the length right. of stay right. in hell. Well,
0: I think maybe we we should make sure we touch also on um, or, or give some explicit attention to the development of the notion of the afterlife in the Hebrew Bible, but also in, in, um, in later Jewish thought. Maybe a good entry into this topic, Svi, is to um, actually start with the New Testament, where we have this presentation of, of a group known as the Sadducees, and they're clearly presented in the New Testament or in the Gospels as a group who, who deny the resurrection. There's one episode where they seem to mock the resurrection, where they speak about a woman marrying many men whose wife will she be in the resurrection. How about that? Did these Sadducees have a good reason, to, a good biblical reason, I should say, to deny the resurrection?
2: Uh, right, well, uh, yeah, the truth is uh, they, uh, they might be called pretty, uh, pretty good readers of Scripture because Scripture, the, the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, Tanakh, doesn't describe a bodily resurrection in, in so many words, really perhaps at all. There is, Ezekiel has a vision of dry bones that, in a very vivid, visceral way, uh, are restored to to life with uh, sinews and tendons and skin. Uh, But that's a a metaphor for the return of Israel. From the uh, exile, exile. from the Babylonian exile. That's right. right. And Daniel does, mentioned in passing earlier, describe those who are in the dust awakening, though the life to which they awaken isn't necessarily uh, to be conceived of in. Uh, bodily terms as we ordinarily think of it, but something perhaps bodily, but that's only in Daniel really. It is fair to say that the notion of bodily resurrection isn't a prominent motif in the Hebrew Bible. Um, At the same time though, it's not coming from nowhere. It it is an essential proposition in the Old Testament, in Tanakh, and this has echoes with with what we were talking about with relation to the New Testament, uh, that God is the God of life, and hence he must in some way or another have victory over death. And so death uh, is often described in the Bible, uh, so illness is described in terms, uh, uh, in terms of death, severe illness, uh, opposition, right, the dying. psalmist, right, the psalmist always <laughs> thinks he's dying, right, Jonah <laughs> thinks he's dying, that's right. And so this is something that uh, John Levinson, among other biblical scholars, have, uh, have, have worked through, uh, that there's a kind of continuity uh, between this theological commitment to God as the God of life who overcomes death in these ways, and then the, the later uh, kind of more categorical uh, insistence on death and burial as not the final word, and hence an insistence on resurrection.
0: Are there prayers for the, the dead anywhere in Scripture, or... Is there in later Jewish thought? Do you, do you pray for uh, the dead?
2: Well, uh, a pr- prayers uh, for the dead in the a Second Temple context. You have uh, kind of the, the the roots of certain of these prayers, but there's an absolute commitment in traditional Judaism to resurrection from the dead. There are very few doctrinal positions that. Uh, the rabbis take. Very few things that they say uh, one must believe, but the resurrection from the dead is one of them. Uh, and then in the standard prayer that's recited three times daily by, uh, by, by traditional Jews, uh, the second of the series of 19 blessings is a blessing about God who resurrects the dead. It's very much a commitment in Judaism. So maybe just as a final, we have one final round, one
0: last thought on this, although there's much that could still be said. And of course, it's a topic, I think, of interest to believers and, and people who are more agnostic or skeptical alike. But I mean, finally, how would you assess the importance of what happens after death to, to, this, to the scriptures, to the Bible and the Quran that we're discussing today? Uh, maybe we'll follow the order that we followed for this episode. So we'll start with Munim. How important is life after death to the Quran?
1: Well, I think it's central to the Quran um, because, uh, you know, one action in this earth have consequences in the year after. So it it's reminds me of the statement which is recorded in the Quran in the context of a discussion of Moses when a named person is recorded as having said, that the life in this world is temporary pleasure, while the life in the hereafter is the permanent one. And whoever does good deed will be rewarded and enter paradise, and whoever does evil will be rewarded or will be rewarded the same in return. So I think this is a principle in Islam, which reflect, you know, how as I just mentioned earlier, that living in this world, although it is short, but it has long consequence in, in in the. Year it's after. not a it's not a plaything. It's, it's not, not, not a game. A it's a thing. serious <laughs> business.
3: Yeah,
0: <laughs> Francesca Mushi.
3: I think in Christianity, heaven is already, but not yet. It's important that heaven is already happening now. Heaven is present with us when we worship God in the Mass. And we are already in some way present in heaven in this world. So there isn't a dichotomy between this world and the next because heaven is already present to us in the mass.
2: And I'd say yeah, that in Judaism, uh, well, here, I mean, it is important to come back to a distinction that we've mentioned a couple of times between the afterlife, that is to say, what happens after one's own life, after death, and the end time. And the afterlife is a, certainly a, a, an important, essential proposition in Judaism. It's one that, given Judaism's kind of interest in articulating God's expectations of us, doesn't necessarily have to figure centrally, but it is there in traditional Judaism, there is this rhetoric of this life as a corridor to the world to come. At the same time, um, there is, I think, perhaps even a a greater emphasis on an eschatological vision that is uh, very much connected to this world, the Asianic vision, of, uh, of peace and God in Zion as ruling over, uh, over this world. It is a worldly vision and it's fueled modern uh, messianic secular, Jewish secular messianic visions of world peace, of working toward a more perfect world. Right. So uh, those certainly have their strong fundamental religious expressions but there is an element of this worldliness that has made them very attractive even to Jews who are very much uh, non-traditional and have done away with much traditional practice. Right.
0: Friends, thank you for joining us. And be sure to be with us for the next episode of Minding Scripture, where divine word and human reason meet.